Oh, amen to that. I was uh, thinking as I was singing that, if you want to scare away a weak pastor, sing that song just before he preaches. <laughs> I mean, there is a, a compelling theme there in, in the proclamation of God and, and Christ and His glory. So, what a, what a joy. With you guys, I was trying to be out here a couple weeks, lost my voice, and make coming up there. They're going to think I'm a prima donna if I don't make it out, unable to come minister. So, by God's grace, we were able to make it through all of that. And, uh, been involved in a couple, uh, one down in Naples, ministry saving, seeing through the various stages. Um, I, I enjoy a church plant ministry, and I was thinking why. Reminded of um, of Matthew 13 and the parable of the. And Matthew 13, verse 31 and 32, uh, Jesus said. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is fully grown, it is larger than the garden plant and becomes a tree, so that in the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. I think about the church. We are thousands of years removed from the time in which Christ came, taught His disciples, and sent His disciples out to minister to the world, to preach the Gospel, to lead people to Christ, to plant the church and begin to grow the church. Thousands of years removed, and you can look around and you can see churches, some have grown significantly. It's in a church plant context that you are reminded of the kingdom work of God starting as the mustard seed. When you're looking around and interacting and you're seeing one another and you're seeing the small families and the small uses of gifts and you're thinking, man, this is insignificant. Where is this going? What is God going to do? It is in those moments you recognize there is a power at work that is distinct, that is manifested particularly in the context of a church plant. Because as that plant continues on and gains sustaining life and influence and motivation, it begins to grow and manifest the very attributes described there in Matthew 13, that it gains a life of its own, such a life that it's drawing in others and people even find their, their well-being in the context and safety of that work. That's exactly what you're looking for as you are continuing in ministry life, you're continuing for a faithfulness that is going to outlast you. The move on to the next generation and the next generation is going to have an influence and a, a transforming work. You have that in your heart. That's why you've committed yourself to a work like this. And I want to point your attention to kind of Jesus' perspective on the church. I love the local church. I love church plants. I love them because the power of God gets to be on display and the longer it goes on, the, the greater the demonstrations of His power. And what's also interesting, having been part of large churches for a while, um, the, once you're in a ministry that's going for a while, you forget this stage. 
that every church had this stage. Every church had the stage where they started out, began to establish their identity, their commitments, their values, their core direction and purposes, and they got to it. The very things that you guys are studying right now in your foundation series, every church had a point in which they were doing that and made commitments and then got on board and the whole ministry started driving towards it. And what they miss once the ministry gets going is the reminders of what the true engine to the church is, the true power and source of its strength. And Jesus draws our attention to that in Matthew 16. So if you turn to Matthew 16, we're going to look at particularly verses 13 through 20. We're going to go through it pretty fast. I'll probably end up giving you more information than you can pen down. But in that, you will at least take home some things. And what I want to do is just walk our way through this text and then at the end draw some implications for you. So just working our way through this particular text. Notice I'll just read it for us. Matthew records these words. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples that they shall tell no one that he was the Christ. Matthew records for us in this section, here in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13, up through Matthew chapter 17 and verse 13, Jesus or Matthew is recording these significant high points in the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is beginning to demonstrate to his apostles, particularly who he is, that he is the Messiah that he is the one who is the head over the church, and he begins to lay these foundations out. Ultimately, Jesus asks his disciples a significant question there in verse 13. You see it. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? This is the question, ultimately, which is most significant for the church. Who is Jesus Christ? There are many who could give answers to who Jesus Christ is, Many devils even give answers to who Christ is. Matthew chapter 8, verse 28 and 29 says that. When the demons saw Christ, they said to Christ, who do, what do we have to do with you, Son of God? The demons and the devils recognize who he is. Mankind throughout, throughout history has been asking who is Christ and giving and pondering various answers. And here Jesus draws the attention to his disciples and says to his disciples, who do People say that I am, asking ultimately the most significant question that anyone could ask, the significance of Christ. MacArthur ultimately pointed out, he said this, that every soul, as it were, will be pinned against the wall of eternity and forced to answer this question, who is Christ? Now here, just a little context, Jesus is, as Matthew records here, that they had come to the district of Caesarea Philippi, they'd come to the most furthest northern region away from Jerusalem, this last resting place uh, of 
Christ with his disciples. He is uh, 25, 25 miles northeast of the Sea of Galilee. He is the furthest region out. He has gotten away from the religious leaders of the time, and it's now just he and his disciples there ministering. They're in this beautiful town, a picturesque town, a town surrounded by mountains, a town in which they were able to come together and be able to interact. And Jesus starts asking these questions. What's going to happen from here in Matthew's account is they're going to turn around and they're going to head back to Jerusalem and you're going to head back ultimately to Christ's persecution, death on the cross. So here is the basically the turning point in Matthew's gospel. The last moment, the last little reprieve of us establishes an unalterable foundation. That's what we see in verse 18. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now this passage, this unalterable foundation, this passage has been quite difficult for many to interpret. Who is the rock, or what is the rock? You know, when he says, upon this rock, I will build my church, is he referring to a person or a profession? Is he, is he referring back to, to Peter, who made the proclamation, or is he referring back to the actual message itself? And is, again, is Jesus directing the attention to himself and that confession or to the one who made it, Peter himself? And a lot has been said throughout church history in regards to this. And particularly, Many have used this passage to emphasize that Peter himself is now the prince of the apostles, that Peter is the permanent and primary visible head of the church, that he is the one who's now leading, and that Christ here is saying to, to Peter, you are the head of the church now. You are the one who we are looking to because you made this profession of faith. And they would say that this is why Jesus is blessing Peter in fact, even going beyond and, and saying, as he said in verse 17, he called him Simon Barjona, so he called him by his birth name, but then gives him his given name, you are Peter. Upon this rock I will build my church. So the emphasis being that they are saying that Jesus here then is establishing the fact that Peter is the visible head of the church. This is the predominant view of the Catholic Church, and even some evangelicals have emphasized that this is the possibility, that this text is emphasizing the primacy of Peter. I want to give you from this text quickly five reasons why that's not the case. So as I said, we're going to give you lots of information today. Here's five reasons why this is not Peter who is being built. The first reason is this. We'll call this the proof of New Testament silence. First proof that Peter is not the head, the primary apostle, the primary head of the church is this, because of the rest of the New Testament does not teach anything like that. Nowhere would you go in the New Testament where you see that. Then in fact, if you were to go through the New Testament, and you went through the book of Acts, for example, in, the, in chapter 15, and you would see the Jerusalem Council. And in the Jerusalem Council, it wasn't Peter who was standing up and giving the final verdict, but it was James. And it wasn't Peter who was being appealed to uh, in the church, but it was to James and to the rest of the church. So at least the rest of the New Testament doesn't emphasize this. I, I just want to point out one more thing, just kind of a little... Hopeful insight. If you turn over to chapter 18, Matthew chapter 18, you notice there in verse 1, 
It says that the, at that time, the disciples had come to Jesus and they said to Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They were debating with, he, with one another. Who is the greatest? Who is the, the most important? Who is the one who is the, that you need the most? And this would have been a perfect place for him to say, well, guys, I just told you back in chapter 16. Now, I just told you just a few weeks ago, a month ago, whatever the amount of time, I just told you it is Peter. He is the rock. He is the one I built the church upon. I've already answered that for you. But that's not what he says. Instead, he says, look, unless you've been converted, verse 3, and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, this, if indeed Christ was establishing that Peter was the one who was to continue on and be the head of the church, Christ could have answered it here in chapter 18. The question comes up again later in chapter 20. Once again, in chapter 20, starting in verse 20 through 28, once again, uh, this question comes up when the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that's John and his brother, went to Jesus and they asked Jesus, uh, which one of these sons of mine, or, or command that these sons of mine sit on your right hand and your left hand. And that, again, would have been a perfect time for Jesus to say, uh, uh, wait a second, I've already given this to Peter. But he, has, he didn't respond that way. Why didn't he respond that way? Because the rest of the New Testament recognize, does not recognize that interpretation. Second reason that this view can't be right is this, that the context does, points to uh, something different. Notice the context back here in Matthew chapter 16. The question in this, in this section, verse 13 through 20, the question is this, who do people say the Son of Man is? Who do you say that I am? The focus of the context is about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the center. Jesus Christ is the focus of this section. And to turn it from Jesus to Peter is to violate the immediate context of this passage. Third reason is the grammatical reason. We'll call it the proof of grammar. And the proof of grammar is this, that the two words there, rock and uh, and Peter, are two different words. The word Peter, Petra, uh, is uh, a different form of the word than the word rock. The word Peter there is in a uh, masculine form, referring to Petros. And the word uh, rock, translated there, is the feminine form, and it's the word Petra. Those two words mean something different. The word Petra uh, means boulder or foundation, a rock bed. The word Petros means pebble or stone, something you can pick up in your hand. There's a distinction in the words, and grammatically, there's a distinction as it's used in this context. So if Jesus wanted to say, Peter, you yourself are the rock, he wouldn't match it in gender. He wouldn't match it uh, and, and emphasize. Or he could have just changed the language and said, upon you, Peter, I will build this, if that's what he wanted to emphasize. So the grammatical structure doesn't fit that argument. Fourth reason is because of the proof of the confession itself. Uh, again, as is, is, uh, was stating here, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's the confession or the purpose of that confession which Established, which uh, Peter is established or being established upon here, or the church is being established upon. The key is this: that Jesus Christ is the Son of the Living God, and it is upon that confession that the church is built. 
And then the last proof is the proof of language. And it is this idea, again, that the proof of language being these two words are different. If he wanted to say it was Peter, he would have said directly, you, Peter, I'm going to do this. Instead, he uses these two different words, rock or boulder, pebble or bedrock, you know, granite bedrock. If you've been up to, you know, Georgia and you'd seen the um, the rocks up there, the, uh, the stone mountain, you see that significant, you know, stone mountain and you see a little building built on top of that you see you know that that's a that's a rock right there that's bedrock you know versus the pebbles in your uh, yard or your your driveway this ones you'd pick up and toss around that's the distinction peter you're like this little pebble but here is this bedrock this unmovable mountain that's the distinction so the point being is the New Testament doesn't emphasize Peter as the head of the church. The context doesn't emphasize Peter as the head of the church. The grammar doesn't do it. The confession's purpose isn't about Peter. And the language used isn't about Peter. So what's the whole point? The whole point is that Jesus is saying something bigger than you here is, is here, Peter, and it's who I am. Something bigger for the church is laid out, and it's the purpose of Jesus Christ, that he is the Messiah, the Son of of the living God. And it's upon that testimony that the church is established and built. This is, again, an unalterable foundation. This is a, a foundation that is strong. You can say it like this. If the church lost Peter, the church is still going to exist. If the church lost Christ, there's no church. If there's no Christ, there's no church. If there's no Christ, there's no body. If there's no Christ, there's no redemption. You lose Peter, you got 11 other apostles. And Christ was able to pick others. You know, we lost Judas, we picked up Paul. We could lose Peter, I'm sure he could pick up another. But you can't lose Christ. He is the very center and heartbeat of the church, as, as the scriptures describe, he is the head of the church. This is the unalterable foundation. He is absolutely necessary for the church. Without Christ, there is no church whatsoever. So when Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and he blesses him for making that statement, he blesses Peter for identifying the very foundation of the church, an unalterable, unchanging foundation. Christ is the rock on which we stand. Christ himself is where we are built upon. Christ himself is indeed the cornerstone of the church by which his holy temple is being built together and around. Yes, God may use a Petra, a stone, to help, but he is built upon the Petras, or he may, he may use the Petra to build upon, but he uses a Petras to enable or support. He uses a Peter to support, but we're upon the bedrock of Jesus Christ himself. By the way, this was the predominant view of the early church. Um, and Catholic apologists know this. 36 different church fathers, early church fathers, emphasized that very view. It's the predominant view of it, the early church fathers, the very fathers that the Catholic church would recognize as being their own, who would profess. They've all predominantly viewed this passage primarily. At least 36 different fathers viewed this passage primarily as the confession of Jesus Christ as being the rock upon which the church was built. So that's the second reason of blessing. Third reason of blessing is this. We are blessed because this knowledge reveals an active building plan. 
or an active building project. It's exactly what he says there in verse 18. And upon this rock, I will build my church. It's an active building project. Jesus Christ, the I, is the chief foreman in this building project. It is Christ who is building the church. It is Christ who is actively building. And you'd say, well, how is he actively building? Because I feel like I'm the one out there sharing the gospel and drawing people in and putting out the signs and putting up the website. And I feel like it's a lot of my work. Um, how is it that he is working? And Ephesians 4 describes it as he gifts the church. Ephesians 4, particularly verses 11 and 12, and talking about, it says that he gives to the church some as apostles and prophets, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service. When God is supplying gifted people to the church, he is building his church. When Christ is adding to his number, he is adding to the church. Christ is the active builder in this process. Ultimately, it is Christ who sends his spirit, who converts souls and draws people to himself. It is, again, the body of Christ whom God has called and given to his son that's being built up and established. All of this is divine activity. And the joy of the church, our ministry life, is that we are part of an active building project. We're part of something that he is involved in and engaged in regularly, interacting. I mean, think about the significance of that. When you're involved in the church and it's functioning as God has designed and Christ is pouring out his gifts upon it, you're involved in a work that the Messiah himself is actively building. It's comforting and encouraging. And there's a demonstration of power. And again, I I like this in the context of a church plant because you get to see it more readily. I mean, listen, you guys know how it is. One week you come in and you think, we are really making progress because we filled up every chair here. I mean, we are moving. And then the next week, uh, all of them are gone plus their friends, and then you're, you're reduced to a lot less, and you're going, oh, the Spirit left us. You know, we're back to Old Testament saints praying the Spirit will come back upon us again. And we're moving in and out. Well, the same flux happens in every congregation all the time. You just see it more readily in a smaller congregation. And the same thing in this regards. The hand of God is always working, always moving. He's always building. He's always convicting and drawing. And you get to see it more significantly in a smaller context. Because he is, as he says, building his church. I will build it. Ultimately then, the church comes down to this church will be built because Christ is faithful. He's going to do it. He's going to accomplish His purposes. We simply are yielding to His directing, getting out of the way so He can be directing. It's not man's philosophies that are building the church. It's not man's gifts that are building the church. It's not man's power. It's the proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ. He is the one who's building his church. Fourthly, we recognize we are blessed because we are part of a distinguished group. We are blessed because we are part of a distinguished group. Again, verse 18, it's my church. It's my church, he says. Significance there, the, the possessive, my It belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole church belongs to Christ. 
You know, it's rather interesting today, and we're just kind of commenting this morning, just talking with somebody, and we were discussing the fact that churches today have removed the term church from their names. It's not church, you know, it's not First Baptist Church anymore or, or Saving Grace Bible Church or Grace Bible Church. You get rid of the church from the name now, it's Lift or Bridge or Canvas or Rock or something else. So get rid of the name church altogether. And I think that's a good move for them. Why? Because they're not the church. They don't belong to Christ. Those who belong to Christ recognize that they are the church. Those who don't belong to Christ will stop using the term because you don't belong to Christ. This is a particular group. He called it my church. And this is the first time, actually, in the New Testament, the term church is used, ecclesia. And some have said over time, well, the term means called out ones, ek being out of, and ecclesia being a congregation or group for called out ones. But particularly here, what the word means is assembly, the gathering. I will build my church, my gathering. I will have my people. That's what he's ultimately saying here. I'm going to bring my people. The church then, what it is, is God's people. Those who belong to Him. So many people run to the church for the wrong reason. They run to the church looking for you know, what makes them feel comfortable or what music they get or what programs they may have or how they feel welcomed or what environment they have. But you go to church to recognize you belong to God. You belong to Christ. You're looking for a place where Christ is manifested and you're saying, I need to be there because there I belong to Christ. That's what the church should be. A place where God's people reside and a place where people are placing themselves under Christ because He owns the church. The church, as He says, is my church. That's why the scriptures and Paul said in, in Ephesians that it is the bride of Christ. The church is belongs to Christ. A couple other observations and we'll make some implications for us. The next blessed reason, the next powerful reason of this confession is this. We are blessed because this knowledge of Christ comes with unstoppable force. It comes with an unstoppable force. Again, notice at the end of verse 18 there, he says, I'll build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The church will not be overpowered. You may say, well, I've seen many churches close their doors. I've seen many up and die. I've seen many times where like whole Communities, whole nations have abandoned the gospel and the church has died in there. Yet here, there's the emphasis, Christ says, that the gates of Haiti will not overpower it. We understand that Christ comes and judges the church. Just read the book of Revelation and you see how he gives his assessment of the church and how he's willing to take away the lampstand when a church has abandoned the truth. Many of those things that happen. But what you also recognize is this, the consistent power of the church who is staying committed to the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, who stays committed to the proclamation of Christ is a church that continues to persist generation after generation. The gates of Hades will not overpower it. Basically what he's saying is this, death will not overthrow the church. Death will not conquer it. Church will not be destroyed Death will not destroy 
the church, church which abandons its head, will then lose its vital source. A church which ultimately denies that Jesus is the Christ or replaces Christ with themselves is ultimately going to die. That's why liberal churches die all the time. The fastest dying churches are liberal churches. Why? Because they've abandoned Christ. They've abandoned their head. And he then abandons them. Church then is powerful because it is dependent upon its master. It's an important message today for us to proclaim and recognize. Jesus isn't saying that we won't suffer, but he is saying that suffering will not hold us down. Death will not hold us back. Many faithful churches have been built on the blood of martyrs who've given their lives to Christ, who've suffered at the hands of godless men, and yet the church keeps on persisting and growing. In fact, the early church at this time, for the first 300 years, faced great suffering, and yet it kept persevering and growing because they were dependent upon Christ. I have uh, dear friends in China and um, they recently had to leave China and come back, and they're ministering in our in our church. And I was talking to them about the difficulties they faced in the underground church there in China, and we're praying. And they're like, no, don't pray for the persecution to stop. Pray for it to keep going because it's cleaning the church. It's getting rid of those who don't belong, who are only there superficially. It's keeping the true church, you know, vibrant and strong. No, don't don't pray for it to stop. Pray for it to continue to have its work. Um, Why? Because they're reiterating this very principle, that death will not prevail against the church. The church is coming with an unstoppable force because it's resting upon an unstoppable source, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it's dependent upon. Now lastly, sixth blessed reason here is this. We are blessed because this knowledge of Christ has a purifying and clarifying force. It has a purifying and clarifying force. He says that in verse 19 and 20. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. The idea of the keys of the kingdom here, the ideas of being able to open up literally life or close life, the ability to be able to open up the doors or to shut the doors and to have, again, the keys of the kingdom as being able to have the keys to open up eternal life to somebody or the keys to shut down eternal life to somebody. Which, by the way, these keys are given not just to Peter, but to the whole church later on as you go into Matthew chapter 18 and you get into the issues of discipline there. Point being here that this church has the power to clarify the message and make that message known, that message of salvation. It is the church, after all, that is the power or is the pillar and support of the truth. It is the church that continues to proclaim the message of the apostles. It is the church, which after all is to identify the gifted men who are able to teach others, who are going to be able to teach sound doctrine and affirm sound doctrine. It is the church that continues to to preach the message. And here, it is the church that purifies. So he says, you, you will bind and loose. You're either going to bind people and identify them as guilty, or you're going to set them free and, and prove and, and declare their innocence. It's the church who's coming along and identifying that in their practice. 
Again, the Matthew 18 section uh, explains that in Matthew 18, 15, uh, and following. whole point is that this church comes and this knowledge of Christ comes with purifying force and clarifying force. Purifying because it's calling people to holiness and righteousness and clarifying in that it's exposing unbelief and believers. It's exposing those who don't want to come under the truth and those who do. So the church is ministering the truth. It's exposing and revealing. It's calling people out. It's sanctifying. It's transforming. It's revealing those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. These are marvelous benefits. So that when Peter made this profession of faith, and, and he, he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He didn't even know what was flowing from his mouth. He didn't know that as he was making that profession, he was saying, ultimately, this message has a divine source. God is speaking through me as we communicate this truth. And this message is an unalterable message. It's a message that's the foundation, the unalterable foundation of the church that the church is built upon. And when the church stays on that unalterable foundation, the church grows and and matures and he didn't recognize as he's making that statement that it is that very statement that Christ was going to use to build his church around the proclamation of him. And it is upon that revelation, that confession, that identifies the true believers who profess that, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Those who embrace that message and say, as we even sung this morning, show me Christ, is those who come in with that attitude. Those are the ones who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't recognize that that unstoppable force was started so small, so insignificant, would have such power that even throughout church history, you see the significance and the growth of that unstoppable message. And you see then the clarifying work that God manifests as that message is proclaimed. Now, just to draw maybe a couple implications for a church plant, just want to remind you of this. You aren't a church because you have programs. You aren't a church because you have a cool website or even a Facebook page or an Instagram or any other new social media that's going to come along the way. Those don't make the church. It makes the church, first of all, is the manifestation of Christ's work in a work. What is that? That Christ is identifying leaders, gifted leaders, called out, set apart to do the work, to proclaim the message. And then you have people responding to that message and embracing that message and committing themselves to it. And along the way, as one uses their gifts and pour out, then you start seeing the vibrant life and activity that comes in the church. We see churches that have been down that road for 10, 20, 30 years, and we see all the fruits that come out of it, and we rejoice in it. But again, all of those had to start at the seedling form. We just need to recognize what makes the church is the powerful confession of the of Christ and then the evident signs of Christ's activity in his midst. So when you are thinking about what you need to be doing as a ministry, you're just asking yourself two questions. Do we see his handiwork among us? And are we making the proper professions of faith 
that he has called us to proclaim? Are we teaching sound doctrine as uh, Paul told Timothy? Are we proclaiming the truth? That's why your guys' core commitments of exalting God and expositing the scriptures are absolutely significant because as you're regularly preaching the word of God, you're putting the message of Christ in front of yourselves and then everyone who comes around and engages in your ministry and it is that that powerful message is what the church is built upon. And you think, well, still small and insignificant and I still think there's a reason why Paul said to the Corinthians that God... Uh, is opposed to the proud, or, or God uses the weak things of this world to shame the strong, and the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. That God uses the insignificant, the small, uh, to demonstrate His power. And I think God gets more glory in contexts like this than He does in the mega context. Why? Because His power is on display. I mean, you think about this, just for a moment, an implication. Why would God still be planting churches today? I mean, in the context, you drive up and down the street and in the road, and the same thing when I went into Venice. I went into Venice, and I like to say as I went into Venice, um, I went there and planted a church because I was ignorant of the area. Because if I had known the area, I wouldn't have planted a church in a place where there were over 50 churches within a 20-mile re- area. And that was within 20. If we, if we expanded out 30 miles, there were 125 churches in a 30-mile radius. I'm like, why in the world would we do anything in that context? It's over-churched. And you guys are much the same way. I can drive up and down the streets and see all the same thing. I say, well, then, Lord, why would you do all of that? And it keeps coming down to this very principle right here. Because where the church goes silent in its real message, the Lord is going to raise up. He's going to establish his work. And he's going to build it. And uh, there's a joy to be a part of that. Even hard work in the meantime, but there's a joy. So stay faithful in that and keep pressing on, praying for this work and praying for the Lord to continue to take his, his message and honor it. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for these things, truths. Lord, thank you for pouring out these principles to your disciples and delivering them and recording them for us that we may learn from them and be transformed by them. We just pray that our hearts would find rest in the stability and certainty of your truth, that our confidence would not be in our own fleshly strength, but our confidence would be in the wisdom and might of your word, that our testimony would be this, that you are at work in us, that you are knitting our hearts together in love, that your spirit is sanctifying us and transforming us and drawing us together. That we're seeing the the fruit of the spirit uh, actively at work in us as we're seeing people transformed into the image of Christ. We're seeing people love one another sacrificially. We're seeing the head of the church rule over us. We're seeing gifted people come to the church and use their gifts for the glory of Christ. We're seeing the manifest power of Christ when we have nothing, and yet you are accomplishing week in and week out your power. Give each of these members of Grace Bible Church and attenders eyes to see your work, eyes to appreciate when you're accomplishing your good work so that they can give you all praise and glory. Help them to be filled with gratitude and appreciation for all that you're accomplishing and give them such an overwhelming sense of what is to come 
but they press through the difficult days so that you would be glorified. We pray that you would use their testimony to minister to those who are lost and burdened around this area, to those who desperately need you and desperately need your wisdom and your instruction. And as you are killing off those ministries that have uh, abandoned the truth, may you rescue and redeem those who have been caught up in the deception and lie. May you bring them here to be uh, reinvigorated, transformed and encouraged again. And may may you use your truth to sanctify their hearts and minds so that you would have all glory. So in all of this, we're completely dependent upon you. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.